You're listening to the Season 8 Wrap-Up of Modern Day Philosophers. My name is Logan Heftel. You don't normally hear from me, but I've worked on this podcast since the first episode, and I just wanted to interrupt up top and tell you that Danny has made his own comic book. It's called Fair Enough. It's out now on stand-up records at fairenoughcomic.com, and it's really incredible. Danny is just the kind of guy who will say to you, I'm turning my life stories into a comic book, and then he actually does it. And it's amazing. It's got beautiful illustrations by Amy Hay. The story is inspiring. It's heartfelt. It's funny. It's everything you would expect from a Danny LaBelle creation. You know Danny. You love Danny. You listen to this show. Go support him. Fairenoughcomic.com. I'm really proud of you, Danny. Congratulations. And now, without further ado, except for the intro song, the Season 8 Wrap-Up Show with Danny LaBelle and Alex Fasella. Welcome to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the season... Eight wrap-up show. Wow. Season eight wrap-up. That means we finished eight seasons. Yep. I'm always so impressed in these. I always wonder if everybody else is like, why is he so impressed with himself? I always think the listeners go, why seasons? It's a podcast. That is the voice of Alex Fasella, the man behind the scenes. Hello. You know from this show. Yep. I emerge from my chrysalis once every 13 episodes. Yeah. To or comment. 12. Once 12, every 12, yes. You're the 13th. Ah. You've been on the show more... Oh, that's times true. than anybody besides me. If I you never think thought about it. about it that way. Yeah. You're the <laughs> Suck only. Suck it, Bill Burr. <laughs> only reoccurring guest on the show <laughs> is Alex. Everybody else, they get one time and that's it. Mm-hmm. But um, but you you keep coming back. I keep, I keep getting back up. I'm like Raging Bull. <laughs> you keep thinking you got me down and I come up and then I just, you never got me down. It was a big season for us. It um, was. And uh, the listenership went way up this season, which yeah, is it was exciting. Really, that was really a good, good to see. Yeah. Because every time I do this show, I always forget that somebody's listening to it. Because my brain just tells me, oh, this is that thing that you do. For a little extra cash, and so Danny will be happy. And then it's like, hey, we got like many thousands of listeners. I'm like, wait, we have listeners? I always forget. <laughs> but you, but you always tell me like you run into people that were like, oh, I love the show. And yeah, I, I've, I ran into some people who were listening to the show, and because they had seen what like Maria Bamford was on, and they were a big Maria Bamford fan, and then they listened to it, and they're like, yeah, for a few episodes, I was like, who's this Alex? And then they said your last name. I'm like. So the guy who's in my phone does the show. All right. Good for him. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And then I got ran into a guy in New Jersey who did a show and he's like, oh, what, what's your credit? And I said, the podcast. And he goes, oh, I love that show. Please. I want to get you and Danny on my podcast. I was like, huh. All right. Pretty cool. Yeah. I feel like we're moving up because I think we've done these wrap up shows like everywhere from like on a curb to a diner. In a car. To a car. And now we're like in a hotel room. We are, yes. Is, on like, a pretty good height of floor. We're on the 20th floor. Yeah. So eventually we'll get to the top of a... Like penthouse or something. Oh, that'd be a, 
Welcome to the Swankcast. Yeah. We renamed our show because we're just so posh right now. Now, I can't say that I've quite made it because I'm in a hotel room. I just basically ran up a lot of credit card debt and got a lot of points okay. that I was able to use for this hotel room. Hey, anytime <laughs> someone has to clean up your dirty towels, you have made it. Yeah. That is my opinion as an American. <laughs> As an entitled American. It does feel like I'm making it, though, because I'm in a hotel. <laughs> Especially if you watch them pick them up and you go, yes, good. <laughs> <laughs> so what's been new in your life since, uh, it's you know, it's usually a year between wrap-up shows. Yeah, so. things have been pretty good. But it's not, right? Because that would mean we've been doing this for eight years. So maybe it's like, what, half uh, a year? Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. Time, Time's a construct anyway, if we're to believe the movie Interstellar. It's created by white people if we're to believe Baron Vaughn. That's true. Vaughn. Baron Vaughn, time was uh, made up by some white man. Mm-hmm. Um, things are good. I've been doing more shows. I got another freelance writing gig for a company called Some E-Cards. That's like a parody of Hallmark. Cool. So I pitched those, and I, I write those on the train every morning, and I just try to really keep busy and uh, have a good – and not be so busy that I'm not having fun anymore is a big goal of this year. Now, last year when we recorded, I was real fired up about Trump, and uh, I'm less fired up, but I'm still pretty upset about it. So, yeah. and I remain politically in bliss, not caring, not tuning into it. Oh, uh, the Jamie Kilstein. People always say like, "Oh, yes, Jamie had that," but he was at one point really into it. Yeah, that then, was his thing. Yeah, but I've never been into it. I'm yeah. lucky in that way. People are. <laughs> I'm so lucky that I can just ignore terrible things. It's true. <laughs> People always say, like, oh, did you hear what Trump said? I go, no, nor do I care. Mm-hmm. I don't focus on so much of, like, his tweets. I just mean more, like, policy. But still, yeah. I get that that is – there is this, uh, a piece in going, didn't read it. I'm sure it sucks. Yeah. But – Look, if people are activists, more power to them, yeah. you know? But most people, I find, are not activists. They're just complainists. Sometimes, yeah. You know, they're just like, I don't like it. What are you going to do about it? Nah. Yeah. I, I I had an interesting thought the other day. I, I went to some of those marches, like the Women's March and uh, some protests when like when the travel ban got put in place. Uh-huh. And I had that thought. I'm like, am I going to meet people at this protest because I've never been to a protest mm-hmm. who are like the stereotypical annoying like this is all because I don't like like just like selfish. Right. And then I realized there are people like that who are there, but everyone else at the protest also hates them. Yeah, but we're like, su- that guy sucks. We're all here to do something. He's just being an ass. Were you trying to hook up with the chicks at the Women's March? Like, look at me. I'm such a feminist. It had crossed my mind. I didn't really <laughs> throw my back into that one, given the occasion. But I was like, well, if I meet somebody else who's cool, I'd be if, into that. If I was single, then I would probably go to like a Women's March because I feel like you immediately have like a great opener. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh. This is disgusting. Yeah, what are you doing? Like I'm for women. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I am a woman. Oh, we well, got so much in common already. Maybe I'm for you. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Whatever. <it> down. <laughs> <laughs> but you're already like, you already seem like a little bit of a hero. You have something in common. Anyway. Yeah. So. And you know, you don't have political differences. I wonder what the percentage of people that actually hook up with chicks at the women's march is. It's got to be sizable enough that you'd be like, all right, somebody's having fun at that after that thing. I bet you there's a lot of like angry feminist sex that goes on after those marches. Oh, it's like it's like hate fucking, but it's hate toward Trump. Well, they're they're just they're just angry. I think in yeah. general, I think a lot of the times people are honestly just angry at some aspect of themselves that they've pushed down very deep, mm-hmm. and they don't want to confront it. So something else comes up, and they're like. 
Ah, a release for this yeah. anger. It's like, I want to burn that part of myself I don't like in effigy. Mm-hmm. That happens. Yeah, and I don't even know that it's so much projected onto like, like that specific thing triggers them because they see that in themselves. I'm yeah. sure that happens too. But I think there's a lot of repressed anger. I think there's a lot of nationally repressed anger mm-hmm. that's coming up um, yeah. in people that it's like, okay, well, nobody's going to disagree with me being angry here except maybe like, you know, some white nationalists or whatever. Yeah, but, and, and sometimes the anger is justified. Like a lot of the things that are right, causing the anger are being addressed. That's yeah. my point. They're, they're like, this is justified. Oh, yeah. So what anger should be at a two, they don't take to a nine mm-hmm. because they're like, well, everybody already, nobody's going to think it's weird that I'm angry because it's justified anger. Yeah. But it is weird that they're that angry. I guess. I mean, I we're think. we're we're at a time when our country is like a pimple that just got popped. It's like real raw because everything came to a head crazy so fast. And oh, I think they're getting dealt beginning. with all at once. I think I, it's just the beginning of the unveiling of hypocrisy. I think you're in, right. Yeah. Like, I think basically this has been going on forever. Yeah, yeah. And like, who was it? FDR was uh, crippled. Yeah. And nobody knew because the media was so polite back then that they mm-hmm. didn't show that he was crippled. <laughs> and then, like, JFK was having sex with, like, a million different women in the yeah. White House, but it wasn't so reported on because they were still like, you know, it is the president. You know, yeah. and by the time Bill Clinton comes along, you know, we're like, hey, this isn't right. And then from from then on, it was just like, you know, Barack Obama was on his best behavior. Yeah. Um, but George W. Bush, you know, everything we, we were reported on, it was a train wreck, right? Yeah, yeah. And then... And then with Trump, it's like you hear about everything. Yeah. And it's like, I just think that it's just going to be more and more and more. And, and basically, we'll eventually have true, yeah. like an Alexa in the White House that we'll, re- we'll all be able to listen in. Oh, we have a, you have the president cast that's just constantly streaming. <laughs> You're like, what is Trump doing now? Oh, he's angry tweeting on the turlet again. That sounds like him. It's just going to be like, we're going to find out everyone is corrupt in politics, as they yeah. always have been. Since yep. politics were invented, yeah, yeah. Corrupt. I mean, the thing that happened is that we're now we're we're now surveilling them a lot closer. So we're finding out a lot of people who who always assumed things weren't as bad as they are now yeah. have undeniable proof, which is why I think they're trying to attack facts itself so hard because they're right. like, I didn't say that. It's like we have a recording of you. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Yeah. And then suddenly it becomes this he said, she said, even though she has a tape where he admits it. And he's just right. like, no, not real. That's why I don't engage in it at all. What, what do I want to go hear these idiots go back and forth? Because I'd rather I'm, the I'm, button, I'm, teaching, I'm teaching myself clarinet on YouTube. Oh, that's pretty cool. And uh, I'd rather put my time to that. I like being happy. Yeah. I like to be happy. I've realized like ever since I see, seem to have kicked my depression and I hope it's for good. I'm like, I'm not going near anything that's going to yeah. mess with my mood, you know? I actually, I uh, I had ordered the, um, you know those master classes they do on you on um, yeah. Facebook? I got the Steve Martin Does Comedy one. Oh, cool. And he said one of the things that he thinks is important for comics to do is read the news. Because not necessarily that's going to be your material, but you need to see the world as it is so that you know what need you're filling. As they, that you're not, mm. A, adding a voice that's already there, and B, you're helping somehow and you have to know the the topography of of what's going on to know how to do that it's certainly true of his career like he sort came in at a time when what was vietnam and, and yeah. everybody was going crazy it was so and, serious and he just came out as a total goofball yeah so i mean that's certainly the steve martin strategy yeah and, and, I, don't, and I don't know if it's true for everyone but it's it's the advice that worked for him definitely i, I think that it's everybody's process is different mm-hmm. so like some people go oh well i love to 
read about this subject and then I process it as jokes. And some people go, I can't read about a thing. I would rather go do it. And then I go, look at the story I had from doing it. Everyone learns differently. And especially comics, everyone processes experience as jokes differently. So where you're going to get it is going to vary based on who you are. Right, right. Was it a good master class? Did you enjoy it? it? uh, A lot of the stuff I already knew. And I think some of the advice only works if you are Steve Martin. But like he said, never look at the audience. And I'm like, well, when I don't look at the audience, now I'm just talking to myself and pretending I'm talking to the audience. Right. I have to look people. I need to at least look at the the dark blob that is the audience yeah, to make sense. Like I said, a lot of it's, it's going to be Steve Martin's way of doing yeah, comedy. Yeah. Because that's what he knows how to teach. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's going to apply everything to everyone. Definitely. Although I saw the advertisements for that and he was wearing a snazzy purple blazer. Very snazzy. And uh, And I love the word blazer. Isn't that a cool word? Yeah, blazer. It's better than sport coat, although I think that's the same thing. Sport coat and blazer both sound way cooler than what they describe. Yeah. <laughs> You're never doing any sports in a sports jacket. Are you blazing in a blaze? Well, you could, actually, if but we're you, taking the you, meaning you, of the blaze. It just seems like, you know, like when a car goes by really fast and leaves like that fire mm-hmm. on the road, that would be like a blazer. Yeah. You know, that seems like. It's like, oh, I want a blazer. Is that that thing on the back of your car that shoots exhaust? <laughs> no, it's a snappy coat. What? A sport coat? No, that's the one you play extreme football in. Okay. Nobody knew what to call it. Do you they think anyone actually plays sports? To men. In, do people play sports in sport coats? Has that ever happened in no, human history? No, that's my point. I'm saying like it's then that is false advertising. It's 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 adver- it's marketing towards men. Yeah, it's the same way they market razors towards men. Like it's like a jet. Yeah, you know, it's it's the it's this crazy idea. Your face is untamable, and you need a jet engine. Right, it's this whole idea that you know, you can't just say it's a jacket. It's a yeah. you know, men need it to be a blazer. It needs to be something sports jacket, hardcore. Yeah. It's to be like the pussy getter. What are those socks? That's all they are. <laughs> Do they work? Yes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, it's always got to be so extreme totes extreme but i guess it works i suppose so all right let's uh <laughs> <laughs> well this is like oh commercialism huh <laughs> everything kind of sucks yeah i don't think so at all because <laughs> <laughs> you don't read no i'm, I'm telling kidding. you i think it's fine yeah. i'm glad to hear that you're not this depressed anymore that's good so yeah i don't know i'm a happy guy that's good ah Good season. Good season. And uh, we started off with Fred Armisen, who got us lots of new listeners. And thank you, Fred, for doing the show. Yeah, I actually, um, and I added this to the blog that I just worked on. Uh, I saw right before that was uh, recorded, when I or when I wrote it to be recorded, he was in a movie I saw where he played a drummer, which, as he said, was his failed career, quote unquote failed. Uh, and the main actor in that movie was the singer from Green Day, and I got to meet him afterwards. No way. Yeah, he was. I have a picture. He was very nice. You met the the Guy lead from singer Day. from Green Day yep. after you watched the movie. Yes, I didn't. I he was supposed to play with a band on the night I couldn't go, and so I thought, oh well. Now I just bought a thirty dollar ticket to a movie, and then they're like, and he's gonna come out and take questions after. I was like. <gasps> cool yeah i think i kept him a little too long because he was like i was like can i get a picture after i've been talking he's like just a quick selfie right and i'm like shit i'm wasting billy shore armstrong's time but we talked about music and he had done a cover of my favorite Dylan you song. Said, do you have the time ah, to listen to me whine this time <laughs> for a selfie <laughs> yeah but he was super cool i wish i, I want to meet fred because he's really funny in that movie and he's really uh i really like portlandia uh 
And also, I think he's a legitimately great musician. Like, he's really playing the drums in that movie. And he did you ever see the episode of SNL where uh, J.K. Simmons was hosting and they were trying to he was playing drums and J.K. Simmons is yelling at him to drum better like Whiplash? It's pretty great. Oh, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, that was funny. This is, all my things are just like, well, did you see that episode of SNL? Anyway. Um, <laughs> it's like the Chris Farley show. Yeah. No. <laughs> Remember <laughs> when you were on, on SNL? SNL? Awesome. <laughs> so, um, episode 85, Fred Armisen and Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan. And I forgot to include in the copy that why I was really jazzed for you to read Marshall McLuhan is he has a line in Annie Hall. Yeah. He's on the line with them at the movies going like, that's not what my work is about. And he goes, don't you wish this was real life? I was in Mill Valley and I, I got to hang out with Mort Saul. Yeah. And uh, he knew Marshall McLuhan. Oh, really? Yeah. They were, oh, wow. They were like friends. So comics so hang out was, with philosophers that sometimes. Was, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. They were like buddies. Hmm. I wonder what drink talk is like between Mort Saul and Marshall McLuhan. He's like, the media is the message. And he's like, the media is bullshit, which yeah. is the message. So I guess we kind of agree. I don't know. I just imagine them both being very cranky. He's the only political uh, satirist that I ever found funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I there's different he, ways to do just, it. He went at it so clever, so smart. Yeah. His wit. I feel like most people are just pointing out the obvious when it comes to political comedy. Yeah, and it and you could tell he knew what he was talking about. He actually was on Jets with Presidents and stuff. I, li- I listened to one of his albums, but he was on something with a lot of journalists and it was a thing where he had actually was reporting on the story because he was there with a bunch of journalists and something silly had happened so yeah it was like okay you are i believe what you are saying because clearly you've not only done your homework you were there when it happened mm-hmm. you know so i always like that in somebody that it feels authentic yeah i liked in the in like the mccarthyism times mm-hmm. he had that joke which was like uh Every time the Russians throw an American in jail, we throw an American in jail just to show them. Like, <laughs> we did it better. Yeah. Um, you can't do this to us. We'll do this to us. <laughs> um, so what, what were your thoughts on the episode? I thought it was good. I, uh, I hope I explained it clear enough because that guy's a little bit hard to talk about with the, the media being the message. But I think you guys nailed it a little bit when you were like, oh, this is... he thinks of imagination like as exercise where you need to do a certain amount of work. And then Fred, it says something I had never considered. He goes, okay, I agree with this, but it's a little bit too cut and dry because uh, like, like McLuhan says like, Oh, movies do a lot of the imagination work for you and books. You do it yourself. And he's like, well, some books are dumb and some movies challenge the hell out of you. Mm. So it's not, so mainly it's a good notion, but it is not exactly uh, as as easy as McClellan made it sound. So Fred brought a nice spin to it. Yeah. Speaking of movies, you saw the movie Mother, right? With Darren Aronofsky. I loved it. I loved it too. I tried to convince a cult member on the train this week to watch it, and he was not having it. It's so funny. That movie was so divisive. Most people yeah. hated it. I thought it was great. But so so this guy comes up to me and he goes, can I ask you some questions on Christianity for my class? I'm like, that's bullshit. But you know what? kind of want to see where this is going. And so he goes, yeah. he... He goes, uh, uh, read this passage from the Bible, and it says, uh, 
Uh, but the female god theory and Elohim is is plural, which would mean gods. And then it says the bride or whatever. He's trying to say that God is is multiple and that one of them is female. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I just saw a movie that was talking about this exact same thing, that there's a forgotten femininity in the way the Bible talks about God, even though it's in there. Like for Elohim, they'll use she pronouns. And he goes, that's not what I'm saying. I was like, kind of sure it is what you're saying, but okay. And then he <laughs> tried to sell me and I just kept trying to sell him on this movie. <laughs> And did so, you win in the end? Did you uh, no, he he asked me. He's like, "Is this something you want to learn more about?" And I was like, "Nope, I will read about it if I want." And I was like, "Mother, sure. a, mother's a tough sell." It is. <laughs> it, it it lost him his relationship with Jennifer Lawrence. You know. Oh yeah. Well, they weren't dating for too long, but I also kind of get that. But and yeah. I mean, though the main one of the main things in that movie, it's so freaky, is the idea of this is what it feels like viscerally to be famous and to also be married to someone who wants your time. Like, that movie scared that crap out of me. So, if cult member, if you're out there, I really think you should give it a chance, but. Yeah, it was, it was, I, I, I would recommend it to people too. I mean, it cult, was very, cult member or not. Yeah. I, I think that that movie was a piece of philosophy. It was. It was art. It was philosophy. It was, it fucking was terrifying too. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is so refreshing and different. Yeah. You know? And, and you know, I don't think I can ever watch it again, but like people when I was in the theater were making fun of it. And I was like, I'm thinking like, how dare you? This is so upsetting. And you're like, Duh, this is dumb. Like, yeah, no, I you're can, dumb. I can't believe I went to see it with my wife and my friend JT in mm-hmm. Austin, who was on a modern day philosopher. Did you awesome. have her set? Yeah. Cool. He, so we went to see it. Uh, JT had a, this really awesome comedy festival in Austin and I was part of it and my wife was with me. So we all went out to see this movie. I left loving it. Good. JT didn't know how to feel. Okay. And Kylie hated it. And she was like, mm-hmm. I think what really did it was the baby's neck snapping. Yeah. Spoiler, sorry, by the way. Sorry. But also. But yeah. not really. It's not really a spoiler. Because it, none of the plot matters in that movie. Pretty much. It's, it's like all it's, it's allegorical and it's, stuff. Yeah. The Bible is the plot. Like the New Testament is after the baby happens. Yeah. And then it's just. This it's it's the Bible to me reimagined as a like a Rosemary's Baby horror movie, and I thought it was great. Think about how many different ways we just read into it philosophically, yeah, environmentally, as environment the uh, about f- uh, as a statement on fame, yep, um, as a statement on the Bible. You could see that movie so many different ways. Yeah, like some people because some really gnarly things happen to Jennifer Lawrence in that movie. <laughs> they're like, this is misogynistic. I'm like, no, this is it's saying look at what religion can do to women when it's really. When they're really swept under the rug, it's abusive. So I thought it was like, I was like, this movie's like girl power in its weird way. To me, the bottom line of that movie was it was about flipping houses. Basically, it was. (laughs) (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) It was like. It was an HGTV show. Try to sell that to the Home and Garden Network. (laughs) I'm Javier Bardem and welcome to Mother House. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Fred Armisen was really great. And I love his attitude. He, um, like we were talking about fame. Sometimes when I get really down on my career, I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. And I feel like I should be on this path that I should be this level right now. And he's like, he's like, my goal in my career was always just to be part of the scene because many, all names are going to be forgotten at the end of the day, except for like a privileged few and often even just by chance. But like, 
You can be, even if you're not the Ramones, you can be one of the CBGB's bands and some kid who loves that era of music will go, you you played CBGB's? That's amazing. And that's still, that matters to him still. Yeah. And I love that attitude because it's very giving. It's saying like fame is not, or, or even uh, art or, or respect and success, it's not a, a finite system like I'll take some from you. It's it's there for everybody because at the end of the day, we all should be there for everybody. It's like a love thing. And he was kind of planting the seeds for what led me ultimately out of my depression. Good. So, yeah. I mean, I think I was pretty depressed when I recorded that with him. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of comes through a little bit. <laughs> I feel like the theme, the themes that were mentioned on this season were marriage, kids, and depression. Uh -huh. Which, because you just got married and you were thinking about having kids and you were sad. So, yeah. it's just going to pervade. Yeah, but now lot, yeah. I'm not depressed at all. This is like the happiest I've probably ever been in my life. Good. And I feel like it, it. that was a turning point. Like the beginning of this season was like the end of my depression. Good. And by the end well, of the season. It took you eight seasons. Yeah. <laughs> Better late than never. Well, but where will I be after nine? Oh, what if it starts again? It's like oh, no, I it hope gets not. flipped like a new Danny is born out of the ashes and he's sad again. <laughs> Oh, no, I hope not. I really hope not. Season yeah. 8, episode 86, Dana Gould and Thomas Sowell? Sowell, yeah. Sowell. Kind of like soul, soul. But, but sort of British. Um, I really like, I mean, we just talked about marriage. Dana has, I, I loved his description of his divorce because, like, I remember watching his specials and seeing that he was married and then hearing he got divorced and being like, oh, that's a bummer. He seems really cool. But he was like, you know, it is sad, but like, we're still buddies, and I think that's kind of great. He lives five minutes away. That was so interesting to yeah. me. Yeah, and because divorce can be so acrimonious, and I think it's so great when, like I was talking to one of my coworkers, and he's like, hey, you know, two of my friends seem really happy. They're getting a divorce. Isn't that messed up? I'm like, no, because they are probably thinking we love each other and we like each other, and this marriage is making us start to not do those things, so let's end it so we can go back to loving each other. Interesting. It's, why, it's, it's, a, it's certainly another way to look at it, for yeah. sure. And it's a bummer, but like you know, life is about rolling with bummers sometimes. Yeah, it's like an optimistic way of looking at a at a tough situation. Definitely, and it seems like his fam have uh, his family is very healthy because of it, and no, the kids don't feel neglected, and they kind of have rooms at both places. It was interesting to me also hearing about him being married to. This high-powered executive woman mm -hmm. and like what that was like. And he was like, yeah, the other side of fame, it's just, it's the same BS, but you know, there's nicer food at the party. Yeah. It's like, it's not that much different. It's true. I feel, I mean, not like I know now, but the more I, I feel like I have moved up a little bit this year in, in my career, in my life. And I feel like it's not that much different. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people realize is that the more you move up, you're like, Oh, but I really want to get to that level. And then you get yeah. there and you're like, but I want to get to that. And then you for, you eventually reach to such a level that you're like, oh, I it should be working. It was all a sham. It Sorry. was all a sham. You're not wrong. What, was, were, what were you going to say? I was going to say, working? like, uh, um, I was going to say uh, it, you should have been working on yourself. And I think that that's, that's a hard line to walk, especially in comedy that's so competitive or even any kind of art or business where you're like, if I just get that, then I'll have permission to like myself. Right. But, but really, and this is the thing I've learned this year, when I go, okay, I'm going to like myself and then do the thing, the thing goes so much better because I don't, I'm not desperate. Yep. I'm not like, please like me. Is yes. shouldn't be the subtext of your art. Yes. Because you know? right. then your art is just 
It's a plaintive wail for attention as opposed to really an expression. We both had that kind of revelation this year. Yeah. Like I've, I like, I, I love myself now. I'm pretty, I'm pretty down with myself. I'd like, good. I would vacate. I am vacationing with myself as we speak. I took myself to a hotel. Would you get yourself room service or are you not that (laughs) acquainted with yourself just yet? I don't want to spoil myself because it could ruin the relationship in the long run. When are you going to put a ring on it though? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm so much happier with myself and it took me so long to get there. And it's so true. You're not going to get it through. You can't get love from other people and absorb it. You have to... Yeah. manufacture it internally yeah and then you and that oftentimes lets you see that oh i am in a world that's where people around me do love me i just when you get so focused on i gotta do the thing you get blinders because you get yeah you can't see anything else and you go success equals love mm-hmm. and it doesn't yeah it, it can you know that's you could, the lie you tell yourself is that there's yeah. a lot of love out there and if i could just get people to point it at me mm-hmm. then i can love myself but if it's the world not would just throw love in my direction like tomatoes yeah. I, yeah. some of it would splatter that's on what me you, I'd do. Be okay. you stand on a stage in front of hopefully hundreds of people who are all facing you <laughs> and point and, and and like yeah Literally, like shooting love your way, like yep, you know, in the form of laughter, yeah, ex- exhaling love out of their mouth, you know, from their yeah. soul, and sending it up to you on the stage, and you're up there, like trying to absorb it all, and yeah. then you walk off, and you're like, how come it didn't stick? How come it only stuck for an hour? Yeah, you know, and then you realize, no, you have to manufacture it. It mm-hmm. must come from within. It must. It, the call is coming from inside the yeah, house. Yes, so I was just thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and I think that there is there is a certain amount of truth to oh, if you do become really successful, you can get fans who really do genuinely have affection for you, and that's great. But if you spend your whole life with that as the carrot, most people don't get to have that. So you don't mm-hmm. want to be you don't want the thing you love to make you miserable because right. then you can't love it even if it's going well, right? And that's not fair to the thing, and it's you not sh- fair to you. You shouldn't need it. You should want it. Exactly. It's like a relationship. If you're needy, it's gonna go. Bleh. But if you want it, it's like, oh, we like doing this. Yeah. It's not like, well, if I leave, you're going to go crazy and I can't take that responsibility. Right. It's you're too... in a relationship with the audience. Don't be needy. Exactly. Make them want you as much as you want them. Be it, like, make it a just... casual thing, like a Tinder hook. Yeah. Like you, you could either both, both of you could walk away from it, but you choose not to. Mm-hmm. All right. That takes us to episode 87 of season eight, Ophira Eisenberg and Martin Boober. Boober. I, I have a hard time saying that name without laughing a little. Boober. This, this boober. It's juvenile, I know. But uh, yeah, I mean, she had that book about um, sleeping her way to monogamy. So I was like, boom, relationships and the all I thou thing. And actually reading that was like, it almost goes back to the thing we were talking about loving yourself. It's like, oh, well, the I thou relationship is like, I have to not think about my needs. I have to think about this person I love caring for them. And only by doing that can I understand what we're both doing. And it kind of becomes like, oh, I see the real me and how I treat this thing I love. So Yeah, explain that a little more. Um, so, so Boober said that there are two ways to address a person or a thing. Or one is I it and one is I thou. So I it means... You know, it's it's actually the way you deal with most things. You go to the gas station and you say, hey, can you fill up my thing? It's a transaction. And that can, you know, those can become really bad where if you're actually trying to scam people or they can just be, you know, this person is just there to do their job and it's a harmless I-it relationship. Right. But the one that really matters is the one I-thou. And, and when you look at something and say that thou or, or you, it's saying, uh, I am here for you. 
It's not you, what can you do for me? So it, it, it teaches you selflessness, you know? Right. And it's kind of like what we were just saying. Exactly it's like, what we were saying. Don't yeah. look at the audience like they're, you know, dollars to, to rake in. Cause then you'll never get them. Right. What you got to look at it is I'm here to make I, you laugh. I'm here yeah. to give to you. I'm here to give. I want to make you guys happy. That will make me happy. Like yeah. almost have like a workman idea to comedy. Like, Oh, I made this <laughs> great comedy table and you're using it. And that makes me feel good. Hat on and yep. Bob the builder uh, hammer and you get right there and you get, you blast the Bob the builder theme song on a constant loop. <laughs> can we fix it? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. The same, <laughs> isn't that the same slogan Obama had? I was always thinking that. I was like, does he know that there's a little mix up of marketing here? <laughs> He's Obama the Builder then. Okay. Season eight, episode 80. Oh, before we move on to, to episode 88, honorable mention from the Fira Eisenberg episode None in a Tree. Oh my God. That was None so funny. None in a Tree. That sounds like a lyric from a Leonard Cohen song. Like, <laughs> and the nun was hanging dead in the tree. In the tree. And then the mother finds it <laughs> hilarious. That's the part that really gets me. She's like, yeah. and she was dead. Ha ha. <laughs> anyway, what do you want to do now? <laughs> That's the end of the story. Isn't that great? She was so dead. I love that story. <laughs> yeah. All right. Season eight, episode 88. Stephen Allen Green and Franz Kafka. That one fit more than what I really like is when I pick an episode or I pick a philosopher and then that one reveals itself to be a way better choice than I thought it was because <laughs> homie had a rough life. He's like, I lost yeah. everything because Jerry Lewis tanked his life like Jerry Lewis ate his house basically uh -huh. with that, you know, uh, saying you're going to pay me to do this and then he won't do publicity. And Jerry Lewis just had no sympathy at all and ruined him. And he became like this Gregor Samsa, like he turned into a bug for Jerry Lewis and it wasn't enough. Yeah. You know, became the Kafka character. Yeah. And it was very, his story is very Kafka-esque. It was a guy getting dicked over by capitalism money. He put everything on the line and risked it for this end goal and he came up super unlucky with someone that he really wanted to trust because he you know in that audience idolized way him, yeah. he idolized jerry lewis and jerry lewis ruined his life arguably and hopefully he's on the upswing but yeah, god we, damn how many lives has jerry lewis ruined you wouldn't think know. so <laughs> but, so many <laughs> I was gonna nice lady it. she's <laughs> ruined <laughs> i stayed friends with uh stephen allen green after recording that episode Good. and uh I'm happy to report he's not homeless anymore. Good. And he's got a studio in Hollywood, and he's on his way back up. Any story that ends with, and he's not homeless anymore, good enough ending. Yes. So, he wasn't homeless anymore, and that nun he hated is dead in a tree. He's a funny dude. I hope. I really hope he, uh, he yeah. gets back up at the comedy store and mm -hmm. living his dream again like he, yeah, like yeah. he wants to. Because he seemed like he really loved it just yeah. for the sake of it, and it, was, it got taken away from him. Yeah, well, you know what? Sometimes you go on that Odysseus journey, mm -hmm. and then you come back and appreciate it even more the second time. Jerry around. Lewis was his siren who yeah. lured him to the rocks. <laughs> come to the rocks, <laughs> rocks, Sophie. All right, I'm not even gonna try. You've got it down better than me. Season eight, episode eighty-nine. Jim Owen and Edmund Burke. One of my favorites, personally. Yeah, I really... He he said something that resonated with, with me, and it goes back to that thing of not being desperate. He's like, when 
you take a more relaxed attitude towards stand up and you realize, oh, this, I'm taking a part in this thing. It's not about me, it's about me adding to this kind of system that goes, the cycle. That relaxation is readable on your face because now you're having fun because the pressure's off for you to be like some kind of god about it. You know, it's uh-huh. admitting that you're smaller than this thing can really help you be better and even just happier, you know? Yes. And, uh, then I got to go see him do stand up, and that was really fun. Oh yeah, you you went to see him when he came to New York. I did, and he uh, he I think he recognized me from my Twitter picture, so he was very very sweet. And he's like, "If you want more tickets, DM me. I'll get them to you right away." Right, that's not an Irish accent, but uh... <laughs> close enough. I'm Jamal, and I'm a known Scotsman, <laughs> Irish Australian Australian. Yes, who yeah, who's became famous in? I heard in actually Australia. heard his name on this Australian podcast I listened to. They're like, "Oh, did you see that movie with Jamal in it?" And I immediately tweeted them like, "Jamal's on my podcast. Please like me." <laughs> they didn't get back to me. But well, I really like him. That's cool. And he was wearing a Ramones T-shirt after the show. I was like, that guy's. Yeah, he is really sweet, really nice guy. And one thing that he said that I really liked was just talking about how it's better not to know if there's a God or not. Because that's what, that's kind of what, like, if everybody knew there wasn't, it would be, like, chaotic. And if everybody knew there was, there wouldn't be anything to strive for. Yeah, and I think that there's a certain um, good effect that not knowing has on the world. As long as you admit, like, like I liked, um, Rob Bell's episode because he's like, I believe in God, but I'm not an asshole about it. I fully admit I could be totally wrong. This is just what I think given the evidence. Since you brought it there, that is the next one we're going to talk about. Season eight, episode 90, Rob Bell and Richard Dawkins. Yes. This was me being a little bit contrary. And I was like, Oh, you love talking about God and writing books about God. Deal with Dawkins then. <laughs> and he did very elegantly, I thought. Yeah. I thought he was very interesting. Though he yeah. didn't tweet the episode out. So and that, fuck him. That drives me nuts. <laughs> like like you you know how much time goes into making one of these episodes? And then you put tweet it out it. there and, and you're like and I send him an email, like even when he didn't retweet it, I'm like, Hey, do you mind tweeting out the episode? And he didn't reply. Oh. I don't know what that's about. It's like, literally, for the love of God, please retweet this. I don't understand that. Like, if you're ever a guest, and I'm going to say this to anybody out there, if you're ever a guest on anybody's show, show them the courtesy of promoting it. Yeah. Because they put their time and effort into it. And uh, for all I know, it was just, you know, he's super busy, and mm-hmm. it got, uh, maybe my email went to his spam, and maybe he never noticed the tweet. And so maybe he's innocent, so I'm not going to hold it against him. Maybe he was like, what does Twitter mean in the light of the Lord? And then he just wandered off in some direction and forgot about it because he was just busy philosophizing. Right. So I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt. But I will say that it kind of hurts my feelings when when a guest doesn't retweet the episode. I mean, retweet it because then it also shows that you were on a thing. Like it's, it's only good to retweet it. So, yeah, it may be a lesson to everybody out there that if you partake in somebody, something, go ahead and help them promote that thing because they like you enough to have you on their thing. Yeah. So at least show them the love and respect. A little Twitter love. Yeah. Throw it back into the universe. hitting a freaking button that everyone's going to ignore anyway. So what we're saying is, (laughs) Rob Bell, please like us. Please. (laughs) Send a tweet out for crying out loud. But he was great. Very, yeah. very charming. Very fun to talk to. Fascinating yeah. thoughts. I don't know if I agree with his view. But I, I love that he clearly has done his homework about the God thing. He quoted things about physics. So he has not come to his conclusions lightly. But then he's like, well, when you say, why is everything here? 
and you just go, well, just because he's like, that's naive. And I'm like, no, it's, I think it's more naive to say, well, how did everything get here? Well, Schopenhauer in blind striving science things move are, are easier than so i feel like his arguments were very detailed and convincing until they kind of stopped but i also i thought he was a cool guy so i don't want to be an asshole about right, it right right you and i are both on very different sides on this but yes i think that helps the show yeah um i, I like understanding about it we're yeah. not we're not neither we're both such good friends that we're like i think you're wrong you're like yeah, i think you're wrong and i'm like yeah and then we high five let's make an episode yeah <laughs> <laughs> but but i also liked his um his whole approach to the church mm-hmm. where he was talking about making it theatrical and like yeah. performance art and, and practical. And I like that. I feel like what I, I, what he said is true that religion um, is not being presented in my opinion. Um, it's poorly marketed and it's poorly packaged. Yeah. Got to make and, more horror movies about the Bible. No, <laughs> I mean, that's not what it is. <laughs> But yeah, you know mother, what? Mother didn't but do you know well. what? Actually, maybe that is what I'm saying, because that did get people thinking biblically. Yeah. You know, um, didn't get them spending money at the movie theater, sadly, but yeah. it did get them thinking. It did get them thinking. I mean, my yeah. point is that I love Judaism. Like, I get so much out of it. I find it so fascinating and enriching and mm-hmm. eye-opening. And yet, if it's presented, ninety-nine percent of the time, the way it's presented, it's boring. It's stuffy. Yeah. And it's contrived. It seems contrived. It needs to be better marketed. It needs okay. to be better packaged. Get a little like, PR guy in here to jazz up this Judaism. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, if you could market a bla- a, a jacket as a blazer, as a what blaze- can that could do for Judaism? Exactly. We need to make call it like rock and rollism or something. But it's like what cool. he was saying about Christianity. It's the same thing. It's like somehow really cool stuff got into the hands of really boring people. Yes. And I don't understand how that happened, but mm-hmm. um like theology is cool, I think. I yeah. think it's really interesting and deep and whether or not you believe in God, there's so much meaning in the philosophy in which comes out of religion. Yeah, because everything in western culture is pretty much based on the Bible or influence. Like I've just started reading the Bible. I got a little free copy on my phone uh-huh. and From the first, guy in the subway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Culty. Uh, but so I was reading, I've been reading it, and I'm like, first of all, this is not a well written book. It's a, it really has no word economy. It's a lot of beget this guy, beget this guy. And he says, in their kind, like every other sentence. Uh, and the plot is just breakneck. It's we get the great flood comes seven pages in. I'm like, what do we do in seven pages? <laughs> but I really want to read that because everyone's worldview to a degree was shaped by that. Even if they're not Christian, they if you live in America, it was founded on the, uh, by a bunch of Christians. So that, that has to have, uh, affect you in some way. And I want to know how did that affect me, especially because I grew up it's, religious. It's the Steve and Martin adv- advice, like yeah. read so you understand the world that you're in. Exactly. And then that puts things in perspective to how you are. You go, oh, that's kind of where I came from. And then when I yeah. didn't, it was a motion already set in that's how this whole place. show got started when I thought about how comedians are really philosophers. Yeah. I'm like, I want to know where I came from. Yeah. I got to go back and check out the philosophers. Because a lot of times you, that was what I, the impression I had when I first, when I did this in college, the reason why I liked it so much was I was like, I've been having this thought for years and I could never quite put it, my finger on piecing it together. And then Plato just nails it. I'm like, good. This is a place where I can go. And it's got almost a therapeutic level of clarity. Yes. You know? 
it's I'm like, oh, that's what I've been trying to say this whole time. A lot of times what people say about comedy, like, oh, you said that thing that I could never quite put right. into words. That's exactly. Yeah. And I feel so much better that it was externalized. Modern day philosophers, comedians discussing philosophy available yep. at Apple iTunes and blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that could have been a good lead into an ad for uh, by Nature's Harvests or Frozen Smoothies. <laughs> Brought to you by Fresh Books. We have never actually been with Fresh Books. I don't know. Not Fresh Books, unless they want to sponsor us. Yeah, what was it? it? Hello Fresh. Hello Brought to you Fresh. by Hello Fresh. They, they they took us on for a few. Hello Fresh. Season eight, episode ninety-one. Jenny Zagrino and Hans George Gadamar. I was blown away you pronounced his name right off the bat because I forgot to include the pronunciation and you yes. nailed it. I was like, what? Yeah. How is that possible? I don't know. It just reads that way. Yeah, because most of you are like, Martin Buber. I'm like, Uber. Buber, you hit it? Buber. It's like, And then you're like, Hans George Gadamar. I'm like, how did you do that? Because that was the one I forgot to include pronunciations on. There's one for everyone. I forget what season I started including pronunciations just because I was like, it was it took too you a long frustrating. Time. And took you, you were, a long you were time. talking to Cash Peters and, and you're like, oh, my guy, I told him to include pronunciations. I'm like, you didn't tell me. I did it because I was sick of listening to you do it wrong. Oh, really? I thought I told you. I did it because I wanted to help you, but no, I did that myself. Thank you, then. I, I hope that doesn't it. sound mean me saying. I'm just kidding. It's very upsetting. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> You're like, I don't know if I can continue this podcast. So what did you think of that one with Jenny Zagrino? I thought it was very good. She was really funny. And yeah. I love that her her new album was Jay-Z's new album. Just yeah. like, just tricking people <laughs> a little bit. I thought that was funny. What, what were your favorite parts of that one? Um, when we were talking about going into space, I don't remember exactly. Do you remember the conversation? But it was something to do with going into space. I thought that was hysterical. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing with the Nazis. Uh, I told her about my friend who sadly passed away last week, Yeah, uh, who was a Holocaust survivor, and how he had a cousin named Fritz Benscher, who was a German-Jewish com- comedian. And uh, Fritz Benscher went to the camps, and he was, in the, he was in the Holocaust. And after he survived the Holocaust, Germans felt bad, and they gave him a TV show on primetime. Wow. So he never left Germany. Reparations. And, and I said, that's like the most work anyone's ever done to get a sitcom. <laughs> and that is I, the longest casting process I've like, ever heard of. It's like, what are you willing to go through <laughs> to get a show? And then, wow. and then Jenny's like, uh, I, I told Jenny that, you know, his thing was that he never smiled. And she was like, maybe it's because he went through the Holocaust. <laughs> That'll take a smile right out of you. <laughs> That was oh man, that was just a funny episode. What yeah. did Hans George Gadamar say again? That was the philosophy of it. he talks about how you know everyone is always saying like oh you got to take down the walls in your mind that lead you to not discover ideas and he's like kind of but really what you know is your prejudices to use a a, a very loaded word is it's like the walls of your mind that guide you toward it, they push you in a direction and if you didn't have walls you wouldn't know what direction to go into. And so he goes, you know, if you're going to interpret a text from the past, you got to understand. It was almost kind of like Barth's, like a death of the author. Like you got to understand where this guy is coming from. And it reading a text or watching a film or whatever is not about did you understand it or did you not like a zero sum game. It's like, well, did you understand the movie? Yes or no. It's like, well, did you feel like there was a back and forth of you learning from it? 
or meeting it halfway to understand it and that mm-hmm. it was speaking to you as well. It's a it's a back and forth dialogue as opposed to just uh you know a, a pop quiz about it. Right. So yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when you just told it over and when I yeah. went through it with her. But yeah, I also remember we talked a lot about body image and about uh being overweight and food in that show. Yeah. That was it was a great episode. And that makes sense because you know the the bias in society as well you got to be thin and beautiful it's like well come on let's have a dialogue with that idea and see that beauty is subjective and all this this was like the germs the germinating seeds of the show that i'm going to do in edinburgh in august which i'm going to do like a show an honest show about being overweight called fat chance oh nice because i always just see comedians just like make fun of themselves for being overweight and i'm guilty of it too in the past and Mm -hmm. Years ago, I stopped doing it because I just didn't want to placate and play into, like, the fat. Yeah. Like, oh, you want me to be a certain way because of this, but I'm not that way. Yeah, dance, fat monkey. Yeah. No. Not everybody's saying Monkey don't want to dance. Monkey wants to talk. But it's feelings. (laughs) It's right. Fat monkey got feelings. (laughs) Fat monkey feelings. That should be the name of the show. But I'm doing a show called Fat Chance in Edinburgh this summer. And I think uh, the beginnings of me talking about that kind of thing came out of episode 91. Do you think that that was an episode that, because uh, it seems like you said your depression was ending this season. Yeah. And that there was an arc upward. Do you think this was another milestone in that arc? Probably. Probably. I mean, not like consciously, but, but I mean, like if I go back and listen to them, I think I get more and more optimistic with every, yeah, and more and more accepting of who I am. And good. yeah, it was a really good, a really good season for me mentally. So, you know, not just the episodes, but the block of time in which they took place was yeah. was a good growing period for me. I wonder what would happen if we listened to this season and then we listened, just sit in your car and listen to them all and then listen to ones from season one and we're like, oh, he's a lot happier now than he was. Or like, oh, he was a little happier before. I wonder what the comparison no, would I think, be. I think if you juxtapose them, you would find that, uh, <laughs> I, I try to use that word like naturally. Um, well, you pronounced it right, so that's good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you'd find that my self-esteem is a lot higher now. Good. Like, I think I, I used to take a lot more shots at myself, mm-hmm. and they were like preemptive. Yeah. Because I had ideas that people felt this way about me to begin with. And so you wanted to play so, into that a little for so safety. To, to make them feel comfortable. Yeah. With with the fake assumption that I had of what they thought of me, yeah, and that's so, that's when a prejudice can really be bad. It's like, well, I guess I got to live this idea so no one thinks I'm weird. That's, right, that's a sad thing. Yeah, and, it's identity. It's it's how like you wind up forming a false identity. Yes, um, on which is like layered on top of your actual self. So you don't know what's real, and you get buried in the fake you. Yeah, it's that's a scary moment when you're like, is everything I think what I built up as a defense mechanism or is this how I feel in my heart? And so you got to go on that inward journey like we were talking about and figure out what part of this do I actually believe and what part of it is just I don't want to think about it because if I do, I'll feel uncomfortable and that's been pushed into me or brought out of me by expectations or something like that. Isn't that what Hans George Gadamer said? A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's all having an effect. I think if you look back at the first season to now, I'm a lot more comfortable talking on the wrap-ups. Oh, yeah. I was on the Katie Olsen episode, and I was like, um, I didn't read it, but uh, you know, I think it's good. And you guys are just laughing like, why is he so nervous? Yeah, you're We're his friends. You're definitely coming into your own as well, man. I feel I, pretty I, good, yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good to see. 
Thank you. Comfortable Alex, comfortable yeah. Danny. I always thought that I would never be comfortable Alex and like almost that kind of like, well, if I'm comfortable, won't I be boring? And then I went, no, it'd probably be much better to be comfortable and a little boring and be happy. And so I worked on it so much. And then I was like, oh, when I'm comfortable, I'm more interesting because I'm not freaking out all the time. And yes. I can actually have a conversation. Yeah. And I think that whole boring thing is just like your mind playing a trick on you yeah. to prevent you from growth. That's all it is. It's like, you're like, oh, I'll wind up boring if I try to be a better, if I try to make myself better. You're like, right, right, right. So I'm not going to do that. Yeah. It's a, it's a rationalization of getting you to like, well, I, I don't want to cross that bridge because uh, it makes me scared, but let's think of a better reason so I don't feel like a coward right now. Yeah. And, and oftentimes that's not your fault because like the expectations thing and you've had to develop that fear for safety and then you've got to develop a fear on top of that because you don't want to look yourself in the mirror if you know that that's what you have. But then when you start to break them all down, it's a lot healthier and a lot happier. And then once you really start digging around in there, you find that there's all these system overrides that you planted in your own brain. Yeah. Where, where like they come out in the form of either a tick or an addiction or um, an anxiety or a depression. Yep. But these are basically things that you don't want to deal with about yourself. And rather than facing them, you've then pushed them down and numbed yourself to them. Yeah. And then when you actually do face them, you realize, oh, they're not that bad. They're just false conceptions I had about myself from childhood because yeah. I was a kid and I had a child's brain and I didn't know how to perceive reality. Yep. And they snowball and then now suddenly you're living with this big scary snowball and you're like, I don't want to look the snowball in the eyes. It'll freak me out. There's like, so many people that you meet that actually believe they're bad people and most of them are great people. Yeah. It's the saddest thing because they can never really truly embrace how great they are Yeah, because they have this false notion which probably came from a parent or someone they looked up to and respected mm -hmm. uh, talking down to them and became their internal voice. Yeah, and that's, that's sad because some people do, by the end of their lives, figure out that that's not their voice. But some people don't. And that's a very sad, you know, uh, end to be condemned to. It breaks my heart to say it. I think it, Ralphie, it took Ralphie's life. Yeah. My friend Ralphie May, who I'm oh, going to do. broke uh, my heart when that happened. A tribute to him on here. But I'll tell you, a lot of this stuff applies to him. And it did apply to me. But I think Ralphie never embraced what a great guy he was. Never okay. could un under understand it or accept it or see himself the way I saw him. And so many who looked up to him saw him. Yeah, I never got to meet him. But, you know, he sent me a very sweet email when I wrote that Roman Polanski discount furniture sketch. And I was like, <laughs> oh, this guy who I watched on TV as a kid as I wanted to be a stand up was like, hey, you're really funny. I was like, what? Yeah. That's, oh, my God. And it was so it was such a thrill. And I was so grateful. And then. I see he just drops dead, and I was like, oh. And he's another example of Part somebody, of like, he was such a brilliant, brilliant guy, and uh, he he developed this false identity, mm -hmm. which was also great. I mean, this this character that he brought to the stage was was a great character, and there's something to be said for, for great comedy characters that you can build. Yeah. Um, as Marin calls it, building your clown. Yep. But sometimes... Um, I think you get you get lost in the character. Yeah. And you don't know how to escape because you built something more powerful than you. And now people know you as the fake you. And you don't even and, realize that that's not the real you sometimes. And you go, this is just who to I the am. Fake you because yeah. everybody loves the fake you. The clown takes over. And the real Ralphie that very few people ever got to experience, and I saw him seldomly but peek out, 
mm-hmm. was this brilliant philosopher, this brilliant mind who like like waxed poetic man yeah. on so many things and like nobody know nobody got to see that side. There's like a handful of us that when we meet we could talk about yeah. that other Ralphie that yeah. I wish the world could have seen. I mean, they got a great Ralphie. Yeah. They got a great Ralphie that he constructed and it was a version of him, right? It's yeah. A, it's they're all a version of you. But you didn't get Dr. Ralphie didn't too get, often. I mean, but this other Ralphie was just this pure, genuine, brilliant, mm-hmm. just amazing mind. I wish I could have had him on this show. It almost happened a few yeah, times. Yeah, everyone but. I've ever met who met him was like, he was so sweet. Even if they didn't like his stuff, they're like, he was so friendly and cool. Yeah, but no, not too many people know how absolutely brilliant he was. Yeah. Like that mind, I've never, I mean, it was like a genius level mind. I actually saw a, li- a flash of him being super serious and kind of like that. Um, and it's going to sound simple, but I think this is speaking to that. When he was on Celebrity Fit Club, there was a they were doing like a boxing challenge on a mannequin and they're like imagine this mannequin is something you hate and everyone was giving these long-winded answers about this is this and this is this and this is that person and they go ralphie who is your man he goes cancer because he took my father i'll never forgive him i was like concise yeah 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 wow telling you that guy was was poetic he was was poetic and then he beat up a mannequin for like 10 minutes It was very Ralphie when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, I miss him. Yeah, I wish I, I really wish I had gotten to meet him just because that was a very cool thing that I got to do to hand him stuff and get love back. But I really wanted to thank him. And uh, I, the email was cool, but, you know, really would have loved to say thank you in person. I wish he could have, too. Season eight, episode 92 on that note. Baron uh, Vaughn. Our and- depression's going to come back by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not depressed. Good. I can still get sad, but I'm not depressed. Okay. That's that's the big the big difference. Like it's amazing to mm-hmm. be able to get sad for like a normal reason. Yeah. A healthy sadness where you're like, oh that's okay. sad and it made me sad, but I'm not depressed. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's good because there is a yeah. difference between letting you know, and, and there's it's more complicated because there's chemicals involved and sometimes things that you have to deal with that aren't your fault, whatever. But, you know, if you're doing okay and knowing the difference between this is a temporary thing making me sad versus this is a thing that, oh, my brain is lacking a chemical, like one needs treatment and the other could need maybe just talk therapy or something. Like I swear by antidepressants, but when I started taking them, I went to like three doctors before I took them because I wanted to make sure I wasn't just throwing chemicals at a problem. They were like, right. All three of them were like, yeah, I think you actually need these. And I was like, okay, good, because I want to do all the work I have to do first and then treat it as a medical condition. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how I feel about antidepressants anymore because what I found is I was going to therapy. Um, I was working on myself. But then I started reading psychology uh, journals Okay, from um, basically like what people read in studying to become psychologists. Mm-hmm. And I started reading about depression and it led me into all these rabbit holes where I started reading about um, masochistic personality disorders okay. and codependence and um, people who suffer with shame and people who suffer with anxiety. And one thing that I took away from all this was that basically all these things are triggered by... Um, they all actually come down to shame. They all come down to okay. to some kind of self hatred. Um, 
But yeah, but it's not even a, the self hatred is a result. It it all comes down to some kind of self criticism. Okay. Um, so there's something where you feel deficient or something where you feel inadequate and you don't want to face it. And so it, you feel a dip in your mood and you don't, you become unconscious of it. Well, you can actually isolate these things when you feel your mood going and you think back quickly and be like, what just caused that? You can, you can step outside yourself for a minute and break it down. It's in, it's amazing because it's like having a knot in your back. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you can like work the knot out and it's gone. Yeah. It's like you have knots in your emotions and you can work those knots out too. And then all of a sudden you can be liberated and freed from whatever these shame and the shame usually comes from being shamed as a kid for something and then internalizing it. So it's like, it's very interesting. And, it's very liberating, and I think that's really what was the final step in me conquering my depression. Yeah. Now, the one thing I'll say to that, I think that's a good way to look at it. I also think that some people have medical knots in their back that really do need treatment. So some people take antidepressants and they don't need them, but a lot of people are, are accurately diagnosed with them because I'd stopped taking my meds for a week, and this is what happened to me. Uh, I have a pair of glasses and another pair of glasses that are the same model, but one is a little bit crooked because the guy did it wrong. And I was trying, I kept putting on one pair going, that's straight. And the other one going, it's a little crooked. Will anyone notice? And I just did this for like a half hour. And that- then I started screaming in the mirror because I can't have nice things. I was like, could- I need to go get a refill. Okay. But maybe there's, there's two things I'd say to that. One, probably medically induced because I was on antidepressants at one point and it really messed with my head. Mm-hmm. And so I think like a lot of that is the medicine messing with your head. And the second thing would come down to shame with you, like telling yourself, like, I'm not good enough to like be able to keep things nice. And Mm -hmm. that was the the source of the depression was this beating of yourself up. But also I think that if you, if your brain doesn't make a certain level of the happy chemicals it's supposed to, you can, you're more susceptible to those shames. You're more susceptible to the self-criticism. Joe DeRosa put this really well. He's like, Prozac doesn't, paint your room for you what it does is it clears all the dirt out so you can see the roller in the paint and go now i have a job to do mm-hmm. and i think that's definitely i think they should be used as a tool but like i said i i think from what i hear they can be over prescribed i was really careful before i started them yeah but also once you get to that level where your brain's operating efficiently then absolutely at a certain you still get, get sad and you can get off them and then you can, well i don't want to get off them because my brain is literally not i medically need them but I, there's still more work to do that I have to be emotionally healthy and that's my side of, of the work. Mm-hmm. But if you're not, if your brain is deficient, you have a harder time seeing that that's the work you need to do. And even if you recognize that, even accomplishing it. So some people take them for a little bit, they get out of their hole and that's fine. And some people need to be on them for life because they were deficient. And I consider myself that. Now that does not alleviate anyone or, or abdicate them I'm using a lot of A words wrong right now. Yeah, that doesn't say mean that they sh- they don't have more emotional work to do. Because once you get you see those knots in your back that aren't medically induced, they're like, okay, this is a situational emotional thing. Now you deal with that one. But there's yeah. it's a domino effect. If you if you have this main basic problem that's terrible, it will shadow everything, and you can't get anything fixed. By the way, the other part of this that I'm sure is where we will disagree mm-hmm. is spiritually. I feel like yeah. you you have to like there if there's a spiritual deficiency, that will lead to depression as well. This is not a criticism of you oh, in any way not. because I realized as I said it that you might think no. I'm talking at you. About no, this, no, no, but, no, no. 
Um, and some people, like like Rob was was saying on the episode, he's like, some people don't believe in God and they're totally cool and not judgy and happy. And some people don't believe in God and they're assholes. And some people are religious yeah. and they're totally cool and they live and let live. Some people believe in God and they're assholes. It's really... It's a it's, case by case kind of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. So I think, you know, some people need to believe that, like people who... Johnny Cash, they say religion has saved his life, and I can't not respect that because he's he had a hard life. He had drug yeah. problems. He was had family abuse and saw a lot of shit, and he needed to believe in Jesus so he could be a good guy to his family and to his fans and stuff. And I'm not going to be a prick about that. So, but, but what is that thing that religion gave him that was helpful? Do you think? Um, I'm not sure exactly he might have just needed because he was such a grim guy in a lot of ways he might have just needed to know that there was some kind of hope through that darkness so maybe that's what the thing is that helps with depression sometimes i mean you could a lot of people will argue that the spiritual is a placebo effect and certainly for some people it is i i this is where i lose some of my expertise because i haven't read like the opiate of the masses mark stuff about religion uh, i'm pretty in a good place right now and i don't believe in any of it but that's just because i try to be a good guy and yeah. and understand and have empathy so i think you can believe in something that isn't supernatural and still be spiritual and that i want to make sure that i come to you in that i that way we're just talking about with yeah. uber and that i don't discount any part of your humanity and you don't mind and now we're ha we have love going both ways and that's just human by the way i think there is something to be said about the placebo effect because I heard this study of the Make-A-Wish Foundation mm -hmm. that the kids who got their wishes granted in some cases made miraculous uh, recoveries where they were, you know, the doctors said they were going to die and they didn't. Yeah. And they had this whole psychological study on this to find out what what could this be because they had, you know, these two groups, the kids that got their wishes granted mm -hmm. and the kids that didn't. And the ones who got it granted, their health on the whole, significantly increased, and they were the, also the miracle cases. So what they concluded was that these kids were able to believe that the impossible could be possible. Yeah. And in believing that, they were able to apply it to their medical condition, and because they were mentally uh, able to fight stronger, they were therefore physically able to overcome illness yeah. better than the kids who didn't see that, that possibility, and they saw, you know, that... You know, whatever the doctors say is final. There's nothing can happen out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. um, so whether or not that's religion uh, as a placebo effect or religion as a spiritual effect, yeah, um, that still seems healthy to me. And um, I don't know if I call it healthy because I always feel like even if you're religious and you're really happy about it, it's often doing damage. You can't see like that whole shame thing. Like a lot of Christians are like, Oh, I feel great. And then if you actually talk to them, they have a lot of weird kinks that Christianity put in there that they don't want to think about. Mm. But like I said, case by case. Now, but, but is that also, question, mm. is that also the person um, taking the Christianity and applying it to their already standing shame? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I think Christianity has shame built into it. Now that I'm even reading the Bible, a but lot of it if is... if somebody was like really healthy mentally mm -hmm. and they studied it, and they didn't have any low self-esteem, and they were always, you know, felt very confident about themselves. Okay. 
Do you think Christianity could or would add the shame to them, or do you think they would discount or dismiss it? Um, what age is this person who's re- – is it like a happy kid or is it an uh, adult? No, I just realized this question is more complicated. Because <laughs> if it's a kid, he'll believe you because you're, you're, you're his parents. Let's take the following six subjects. Yes. <laughs> Different ages and – If it's an adult, they'll go, what? Like Doug Stanhope has a lot of material about – he's like, yeah, you know why they teach you uh, religion when you're a kid? Because it's the same as smoking. Like – Get them while they're young, otherwise they won't. I've you don't start that. smoking yeah. at forty unless yeah, something yeah. terrible happens. Right, right. So, and like I said, I don't ever want to come off like I'm being judgy of anyone who who does believe because I'm. Sh- I think everyone believes something that someone else thinks is dumb, and we all have to understand that every you you believe something, I believe something, and you're gonna. Go, I love that guy, but that's that's dumb. Right. And everyone has that thing. No one's perfect in their intellect. And because we're all human and we're going to be inherently flawed in that way. And so just don't be a dick about it. That's yeah. that's if you take one thing away from my philosophy, just think, don't make the world worse than it has to be. I'll second Please. that. Yeah. Don't be a dick. The modern day philosophers <laughs> philosophy. The modern day philosophers promise not being a dick since 2013. Yes. Baron Vaughn and Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, we got sidetracked. Yes. But we did touch on it a little bit about how he talked about. Time being a construct of white men, yeah, which I, I thought was that. really cool and I interesting love, way to look at it. I love when someone on the show drops like a good philosophy point, but it's just a throwaway joke. And you're like, wait, talk about that more. That was really, <laughs> He's like, I'm late all the time because time is just made up by some white guy. I don't know him. And I was like, that's an interesting idea because different cultures have different concepts of time. But he just threw it off and it was really funny. But I'm like, can we back up to that? Because yeah. I'm a little interested in that now. Yeah, that was really interesting to me. Yeah. What a story, too, about uh, growing up yeah, yeah, in Vegas and having to sneak out in the morning, not wake anybody up and yeah. go to school. And- what was the whole thing with his dad? And back to shame, it's like he got his mother pregnant and then he Not Baron, couldn't- his dad. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope. Yes. Uh, that could be a very weird family. Yes. His father got Baron's mother pregnant with him and then the father realized the his father would say this is unacceptable so he just bolted and didn't acknowledge him what an excuse <laughs> yeah so i mean it's really cowardly when you think about it but it seems like they've actually made amends so i can i i think what i gathered from that is that guy did that and then felt like oh my god what have i done and now is trying to make up for it so i can understand i want to see that documentary he said he filmed the whole thing. yeah yeah i want to see that too I, I thought it was also interesting when he talked about playing down his intelligence in school mm-hmm. to fit in with the other kids yeah and I mean that that's uh I've I've heard from certain people that that can I'm trying to say this that doesn't sound insensitive I've heard from other black people that sometimes that's a thing that if you're a smart black kid you'll get picked on for being smart because it's like you're acting white and I know I've I'm walking into a minefield because I'm I think crispy well, he, white I think talking he's, about black he stuff. He said it, so you're just yeah. discussing what he said. Like a friend of mine, Jerron I'm, Young. I'm, I'm protecting you yeah. as a friend Thank right you. now, so you can. My friend Jerron Young has a great joke about how his friends make fun of him at the in algebra for always solving for x, and even the teacher was making fun of him a little bit because really? he always knew what x was going to equal. That's I'm butchering it, but you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, very interesting perspective. Interesting perspective that I'd never heard before. Um, episode season eight, episode ninety three. Phil Proctor and Karl Marx. He Whoa. almost died in a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, that's that guy is on uh, another um, like magnetic field. I feel like yeah, than, than we are. I mean, just the whole. 
thing about when he'd walk into rooms and the lights turn on, and that's the aliens telling him. You know, I tried to make a joke mm. about it, but he didn't go for it at all. <laughs> he's a little sensitive for that whole alien lights thing. Yeah, he's like, oh, yeah, many times. And, and you know, like you were saying, everybody has a thing that someone believes and everyone else thinks it's stupid. Yeah. So I was trying to be sensitive to that and be like, you know what? Maybe that's true. I don't know. Maybe lights do go on because aliens are proud of him. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand... Um, that's dumb. Sorry. Well, it's <laughs> funny. I mean, like... It, it is funny. It's funny. Like... I wanted to joke about it. He was not having that joke. I How was, do you have that belief and you don't have a sense of humor about it? Like, you got to know that that's ridiculous, even though if you believe that in your heart, it's really silly. Don't come on, man. I feel like if, come on, I, Phil. if I believed that, I'd have to have a few. Like I was saying, you have defensive jokes. Yeah. Like, to, like preemptively defensive jokes. Like, people are going to think things. Let me have mm-hmm. a few. Definitely. To lighten the mood before I lay yeah. this on them. I know this sounds crazy because it's totally crazy. But in the episode, I'm like, what if the aliens are like, you walk in the room and they, they forgot to hit the switches and they're like, damn it, now he's not going to know we're proud of him. What do the aliens do if they're not proud of him? Do they start like <laughs> charging him more for his electric bill? Like what happens? You know, it's like re- my meter's off the chart. God, I'm trying, okay? It would be really funny if he finds out at some point that his, just his wife installed <laughs> smart bulbs in the house and kept Telling Alexa, turn the lights on. She's been running a 40-year prank on him. He's like, no, 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 it's aliens. They just had the early versions of the smart bulbs. Ah. Oh, man. Oh, my God. I'm telling you, there's aliens. Mm. Yeah, that's like you you bring, like, uh, you know, a Bluetooth system to somebody in, in yeah. like, the sticks, and, and they and don't goes, know about Watch it. Watch this. <laughs> Alexa. But what a brilliant guy! Like, and yeah. and and he sang beautifully in Russian. That was amazing. The part about uh, he was like, "Oh, my first wife was friends with Sharon Tate and invited her to a dinner party." And she's like, "No, I got to do some stuff." And then the Manson family showed up and killed her. Like, yeah, my God, keep your plans. Yeah, geez, that's amazing. Like that story. That's why you don't double book stuff? Yeah, and and also you know what hit me from that episode? Now that I think about it, was when he was talking about the fire sign theater. And how he gave up a more commercial uh, career opportunity to try and have an effect on the culture. Yeah. I thought that, that was... That was his version of, you know, meaning and success. And, and that one really respected. made me think after the episode for a while. Like, would he have had a bigger effect on the culture had he gone for a more commercial career first? Yeah, that's... And a, then tried to have an influence on the culture. Yeah, because a lot of people have this conception like, oh, you either stay indie or you sell out. And that's a very purist, almost elitist kind of you know, punk rock idea of like, oh, your favorite band is good until they sign with a major label and then it's all radio bullshit. Yeah. And I'm of the opinion that if you go to the commercial thing but you don't sacrifice what you love about yourself, maybe you just don't quite go balls out just yet, but you're still you enough that you're being, that you're happy with it. Mm-hmm. I think that you can probably have a better running start. It's like when people, I've had uh, friends who are like, you know, if I ever got asked to do a TV spot, I don't have five minutes of clean material because I'm so crazy. And I'm like, well, then it sounds like you don't write a lot because you wouldn't, wouldn't you eventually have five, right. five minutes of yeah. stuff that's acceptable on Letterman but then I just from making so much stuff that you still really like? Yes. I, I think that that's, it seems like it's just a, a lack of work ethic. Totally agree with that. But in the case of Phil Proctor, there's no lack of work ethic. I yeah, mean, they were very prolific. They put out so much work. Mm-hmm. But then the interesting question um, that I had as a counter question to what if he had become 
commercial raised his profile and then had a bigger effect on the culture. Yeah. Would he have, had he had gone commercial, would he have been caught into the trap Hmm. of being in commercial and not wanting to go back to do more meaningful work because he kept getting offered Dr. Doolittle movies, let's say, like some people do, you know? Um, It's it's hard because some people get famous and then they go, fuck this, I want to do what I want, and then they maintain their fame because that was the right move to do at the right time. mm -hmm. And some people fall into that trap of doing a million bad movies and then they get known for being famous, but they won't go away. And Mm. I think that that's a dangerous trap to get into like oh that guy's still making movies and you're like yeah and they're all awful because he just can't let it go it's 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 an interesting question like you got to be a a military level strategist sometimes with this stuff otherwise you could be you could go down a hole that you don't realize how you got there and you can't get out now an interesting moment for me came after recording this episode i was up in mill valley with mort saul and uh, i'm sitting talking to him and somebody comes up and says Hey Mort, you know who uh, Phil Proctor is? And he goes, no. He goes, dude, that guy was hilarious. Fire sign theater. I just thought he'd he'd be somebody you knew. He's like, anyway, man, I'm a big fan of yours, Mort. And he's like, oh, thanks. And he walked away, and I'm like, oh, you don't know Phil Proctor? I just interviewed him for for my show. Mort's like, no, I never heard of him. My question is, why did this guy meet Mort Saul? And he's just like. But do you know Phil Proctor? It was so interesting because like, I've never heard anybody say that before. Yeah. And I had just recorded with Phil Proctor. And this just random guy up in uh, San Francisco comes up to Mort while we're talking. And, mm-hmm. and of all people, he's like, do you know Phil Proctor? He's like, hey, Mort, I don't want to talk about Mort right now. I got I want to hip you to Phil Proctor. Yeah. He's like, dude, Fire Sign Theater. And I was like, wow. It's like, did you just try what to out chances? indie comedy? And he Mort also Saul? picked, of, of all the Fire Sign guys, he specifically asked about Phil Proctor. Yeah. Anyway, episode 94, season 8, Jamie Kilstein and Thomas Jefferson. It always is dicey, as Jamie points out, when I give you a philosopher who is often known for just having a lot of slaves. That is a big hurdle to have to jump to get to what he was especially because he was like this is the means to freedom and blah 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 blah. sally fetch me a mint julep okay it's a very he was yeah which it's the official drink of racism i like to say um and then you know i I won't jump to this but then we did alexander hamilton next and they were they were notoriously uh they hated each other and Hamilton's argument was always, yeah, you say that me having wanting more federal power is enslaving the southern farmers. Guess who you're enslaving? The slaves? You're a total hypocrite, dude. Yeah. You know? But I find Jefferson to be very interesting. Um, It's, you know, out of all the people that that really fought for attention in that founding father period that I'm super fascinated by, he was the one who was even-tempered enough, and he understood how to... I read this book about how he understood how to compromise. He uh-huh. knew how to strive for the ideal, but know when he had to roll with it to make as much of what he wanted happen happen. Uh, which is why he was president twice because he understood how to massage power into place. Interesting. And he was skeptical of putting it into the hands of people he thought didn't deserve it. He was also uh, a, a slave owner, so fuck so him. He was also someone who didn't deserve it. But he was yes. Oh. But he was he was you know a brilliant guy in his way. Yeah, of course. So maybe he did. Deserve I don't know if anyone's doubting it. Yeah. They're like, no, oh, was he smart though? Yeah, he was super smart. But yeah, what do you think about the stuff with Jamie and his um, 
alleged uh that's oh that's a not to untangle if ever there was one um his what he said made sense but also i haven't heard the other person's side of it so i can't say for sure like yep this one's not real but it did seem like the article that w- that was quoted was suspicious in that it seemed like it didn't do all its homework before it outed this thing so i don't know what happened i'm not going to defend him or condemn him because those were serious allegations, but also it was super vague, and I'm, I'm, it, it's, it was vague. And the thing to keep in mind also with this case is that Jamie wasn't famous enough for people to really dig in and 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 figure out what's going on. Like, yeah, with Aziz, when that whole Me Too thing came up, he's a big deal, so everybody was like analyzing the situation mm-hmm. from every angle, and there was like articles saying Aziz you mistreated her, and people saying it was just a bad date. And it just went back and forth and back and forth. But with Jamie, everyone was like, they didn't know who he was. They're just like, oh, I guess he's just done then. Yeah. The only people that were like really paying attention to it, people were like, oh, that guy that was calling us out on Twitter is now getting his own medicine. So, right. so it wasn't big enough to be a national conversation like Aziz. But some people were like, yeah. Some people were doing like victory dances over that stuff, which is a Upsetting. bit much to yeah. celebrate someone's I mean especially for that like if that was if if that did really happen celebrating that somebody got hurt and it proved you right that's pretty gnarly yeah I wanted to show the world the Jamie Kilstein that I knew starting out in comedy mm-hmm. because you know as we talked about he and I started out together and I always knew him to be a sensitive kind of uh shy mm-hmm. uh intelligent uh funny guy and yeah. um he loves music there's a sweetness to him and I I you know, that doesn't discount that if, in fact, I have been, had one pulled over on me. Could be. Uh, you know, you never know. Maybe he did do something, but I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And more so when I know them and they have a good track record with me. Yeah. So I I was like It's not wrong to want to hear him. To his situation. It's, yeah. Especially because you can't track down that author or that woman, but you can talk to Jamie and be like, okay, let's start to unravel this. Somebody commented on our itunes page yeah that they unsubscribed from our show because of that episode but they didn't even listen to him yeah they were just mad that i would have somebody on um at who and they're like how dare he try to like defend and then she says uh i'm assuming it's a she who, who wrote this i didn't even listen to the episode yeah I'd be. I get it if she listened and she was mad, but you don't get to not listen. She and didn't even listen, mad. and that's the point. Yeah. Listen, you need to listen. Yeah. Like whether you think it's true or you don't think it's true, or you're against it or you're for it, mm-hmm. or the person, you need to listen. Hear people out. People of all genders should be heard out. Yes. So it's the modern day philosopher's promise. <laughs> we made a lot of promises today, yes. and we'll keep. Probably a couple of them. Maybe. I don't really remember half of what we said, but... That's our other promise. We forget as soon as we promise things. <laughs> yes. So we, we're consistent, at least. We promise that. Which brings us to your main man, Alexander mm-hmm. Hamilton, in episode 95 with David Keckner. First of all, a dude has five kids because his wife was like, yeah, but let's like put more of those frozen eggs in me. And he's like, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Five of them. All from the same batch. Uh, fertilized on the same day, yes. as we said. Interesting, huh? Yeah. He seems like he he really has a good attitude toward it. Like, I loved when he was like, when one of our kids acts up, we make them think about what they did, but not in a, like, think about what you did. It's like, 
please write an essay or do something nice for your brother that you just hurt. And just so you understand, you, you put it into context and you actually learn from it. And I was like, yeah. that's a great idea to be like, okay, your punishment for doing this bad thing is to do something constructive to fix it for the future. And I was like, that's brilliant. Good approach. A lot of parents are just yeah. angry and they don't, they don't get that far. I was very impressed. And I said it at the top of that episode, but when I got to his house, it was a fun house for kids. And I thought that was so cool. Mm-hmm. It was just like there were slides, like twisty slides. You're like, I want to go on that slide. Can we do- giant pool with toys in it. And I was just like, oh, this is just a kid house. Yeah. He, he basically, like, I feel like he's a big kid. Yeah. And then he has kids. And I don't know his wife, but I have to assume she's probably also a kid at heart. And they're like, let's just make a fun house for yeah. kids. The two fun houses you've been to on the show is David Keckner's house for actual kids and Doug Stanhope because he likes to wander <laughs> around it on Molly. <laughs> It's like all slanted and painted weird from what I've seen. Yeah. Those were the two funnest houses. <laughs> so Doug Stanhope was like, not kids? Ugh, One get them away. had a lot more drugs than the other. Although, sure. you know, those kids might be on drugs as yeah, well, I mean, for all you know. It's never too late to start. <laughs> like uh, like the ones you're on or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not. But, you know, they prescribe kids so many medications Sometimes, nowadays. Yeah. You never know how many drugs are floating yeah, around a kid Maybe house. that kid's got a prescription for cocaine. I don't know. I'm not his doctor. How'd you feel about the philosophy of uh, Hamilton as absorbed by myself and David? I loved that he was like a little skeptical about whether or not this counted as a philosopher. And then as you kept reading, it's like, oh, no, this guy has a really clear viewpoint. It was the same. I love that we did Jefferson and Hamilton back to back. That was awesome. Yeah. Because they were notorious rivals and always two sides of this fighting for Washington's attention, more government control, less government control, and making really poetic arguments both ways for it. But um, I, I liked that the, you know, he's like, okay, I, I know a bit about him from my po- political science degree, but not what I think of as a philosopher, but let's go with it. And I, I think it ended up working, so I was pretty proud with that. that yeah, did. I think it was great. Um, yeah. So, yeah, me and Hamilton, uh, here's our history. So I love the musical and I also have a problem with hero worship, as I think I may have told you. Like when I was in college, I really wanted to be Bob Dylan. So I was wearing sunglasses at night all the time. And then I got older and I wanted to be Tarantino. So I just watched a bunch of movies and got weird about that. And then a couple of years ago, I got fixated with Hamilton. And Hamilton uh, was a workaholic to the point where he probably had some kind of manic episodes that made him sit at his desk and crank out the Federalist Papers like an actual illness. So I, uh, I I was in this place in comedy where I felt like, okay, I, I want to put more effort in and really do things and get things done. Um, and I went down this rabbit hole where there's a song on the, on the album called Nonstop. And it's like, this guy's nonstop. He's always, he's a, so many cases as a lawyer and so many papers written. He, he'll never stop fighting for the America he wants. And so I took that literally because I was sleep deprived and depressed at the time and went, you know what? I'm going to put so much work into comedy that I literally never stop. If I'm on the way to the train, I'm going to be writing jokes. If I'm on the train, I'm going to be listening to comedy albums. I'm never going to stop. Manic, I am nonstop, just like Hamilton. And a manic then, attitude if there yeah, ever was one. And then I burnt out really hard because the thing that no one tells you when you do that is that then you don't have a life. So you have nothing worthy to talk about. So I would get on stage and also super desperate because I was like, oh, this is good. I got to put it. I got they got to like me so I can get rise to that next level. Yeah. And then I did I did this show in like somewhere in Long Island. And it was such a disaster because I had such high expectations and I hadn't been living a life. So anything I had to talk about 
I wasn't really talking about it in a way that had any life to it. It was just, these are jokes. Please like me. And it was so embarrassing and so silent. And I took the bus ride home and I've been doing comedy a while and I'd never, ever thought about quitting until that night. And thankfully I didn't, but I was like, okay, I got to re-examine this. And so I, I thought about it. I was like, Hey, I took a song literally. That's not a good idea to live your life by. <laughs> and but it still bugged me. I was like, I want to know what Hamilton's work schedule was so I can at least know like, okay, how much work goes into that and then mirror it somehow. Right. So then I found in wow. a book about him, he had <laughs> You really went far with this. Go did on. You, did you not realize I'm a crazy person over oh, these eight seasons? No, I always knew it. I just didn't understand how yeah. far it went. Okay, so keep so, going. So he when his before his son was killed, his Philip was the son that was gonna be. He was training him to be a lawyer, just like him. It was like family business, and so he wrote rules for Philip to follow every day. It was like from this point in the morning to this point, he'll read law, and then he'll go into work and he'll write law and he'll read law. He'll come home, he'll have dinner, and he'll read law some more, and then he can read whatever he wants. And then on Saturday he goes to church, and uh, Sunday whatever, all this stuff. And so I looked at this. I'm like. Oh, from five to seven, he can do with his time what he pleases. Huh? That's a break. After Saturday, Sunday on church, he can he can have fun. I'm like, what? Oh, he wasn't God. actually nonstop. Of course he wasn't. That's right. Not, right. And then I realized, oh, Hamilton had a wife, eight kids, and a mistress. Of course he took breaks. Yes. He got so much to ah. Oh. And now I'm a lot more healthy, but I feel like I intellectually learned a lot of good stuff. Like I read a lot of acting books, and I yeah. really charged at stuff. And I learned to riff jokes that really meant something without writing them down first, just talking them out. And so I learned a lot from that time. And now I'm just healthier about the stuff I learned. But I also know that I am a workaholic and I got to really keep an eye on that. And I know that you're a good candidate for cognitive behavioral therapy. Hell yeah. (laughs) I've seen it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool, man. That's a real strong connection to Hamilton that you've got there. That's a good one. That's one way to put it. Um, episode 96 <laughs> of season eight was Erica Rhodes and John Rawls. That was one where you guys called me. You're like, I don't get it. Help. Yes. <laughs> I explained it the best I could. Another Alex appearance on the show. Yeah. Which I'm always happy for. Yes. It was but, good to have you. And yeah. Uh, first of all, like I've, I'd never met some, I mean, I never met her, but I'd never encountered someone who just played the imagination of another character on Prairie Home Companion. Like, what a niche role to fill. Yes. The conscience of Garrison Keillor, which he's been accused of a lot of sexual misconduct, so apparently she wasn't doing her job. This was, by the way, our most popular episode of the season. Oh, even more than, like, Fred Armisen? Even more than Fred Armisen. Huh. I mean, in, cool. in terms of audience feedback, nice. people loved this episode. Like, Good. loved it. To the point that I've had several people, including Erica Rhodes' mother, hmm. write in and say that I should do a show of me and Erica. Oh, I wish I wish that Erica liked the philosophy as much as people liked her <laughs> complaining that <laughs> you, she didn't understand it on you, the episode. You, you were upset because uh, you felt you failed her in some way or no, what? No, I, I thought I did a good job, but some people it just doesn't click with. And that's, you know, I'd explain it the best I could on the phone call. And I wasn't mad. I'm happy to explain that kind of stuff. But yeah. like I said, it's just it's, some things click with people. Some people on our show have really liked what we, I've given them. Some people struggle with it. And that's okay because that's what these discussions are about. It's just real time. Yeah, I love and, and I'm so grateful that we were able to reach you and, and that you answered your phone in yeah. that moment. That was like, 
you know, so uh, fortuitous, you know? I think I had come home from like a rough date or like a long day of work. And I was like, hey, Danny. And it's like, this is Eric. I don't understand. I was like, okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's the second time we've done that. The first one was with Kurt Braunholm. Where I was drunk in a comic book store. Oh, really? Yeah. I was hammered and I was looking at Iron Man. to follow you around with video cameras and document this life of yours because... You are trying to live the life of Hamilton. It was. And getting drunk in comic book shops. Which there's no proof he didn't do that. <laughs> this is a fascinating... If you have a reality TV network, I am pitching you Alex Fasella. Good. This. Uh, what did you think of the rest of the episode? Um, that- I, I liked it. I mean, what uh, the, the message I, I got from it was that, you know, she, uh, you guys understood the basic core of like, okay, good is good, whatever. You, you weren't crazy hot on the thought experiment of it but you know like you you understood what the main goal was which is all that i can really ask and you seem to really love that dude got the bronze medal and that's on his wikipedia forever so (laughs) a bronze medalist Mm -hmm. um yeah and i like the other stuff at the top uh the stories uh that erica had about um her childhood cracked me up. $300 allowance for like Jenko jeans. Yeah. I was like, how did her mother think that was a good business deal? And I like All right. when she was a kid that her, her mom wanted her to do, I forget what kind of lesson it was. And she's like, well, your dad liked doing that. And she's like, why don't we give the lessons to daddy? Yeah. That was just such a clever little child response. Yeah. You know? And then her sister, I guess, was a violinist or something. And her mother was like, I'm so proud of you. Great. And she's like, excellent. Can I stop this now? I hate it. No, I think it was her. She was doing. Uh, no, it was her sister. But she also, she played oh. cello. But the sister the cello. was the one who said, I want to quit. Because I don't oh. think Erica quit. I think she still did it. Maybe a little. Okay, I'm on. Or maybe, I don't know. Anyway. As we know, I'm, I'm chasing the legacy of a dead man. Uh, <laughs> Are you still Hamilton? 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 I'm responsibly Hamiltoning right now. Because I because Hamiltoning, <laughs> I went too hard. I went on a Hamilton bender. Yeah. And I went off the rails. <laughs> but now I like I make sure that, you know, if I have a weekend free, I read a lot of acting books. And I read about history. And I read about things I love. So I can. And I try to go have new experiences and stuff. And I realize where, you know. Right now, especially in the New York comedy scene, the prevailing wisdom is like, oh, if you don't get on stage like six times a day, you don't want it bad enough. And it becomes this like pissing contest. And I have learned that, you know what? Some people have to do that. And some people, uh, you know, I've I've gotten a lot of material about I'm just going to walk around and people watch and deep think for a few hours. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to go to an open mic and I'm just going to talk. And I'm going to talk about what happened to me that day. And if nothing comes out of it, fine. And if something does, cool. And the jokes I've gotten out of that, because they're less labored and they're more just from the heart, have stuck around a lot longer than ones where I labored over with a pencil. So yeah, what work I th- takes many forms, especially in what we do, where a lot of it is almost journalistic. Right. I think whenever you see everybody doing one thing, do the other thing. Yeah. But then again, you're taking that advice from a man who everybody else did one thing and went on to success and stardom. Yeah. And I did the other thing. <laughs> But I'm happier than most of them. Yeah, so I mean, it took it, a while, but I got there finally. And also, it's perspective. You got to realize what, my, what one of my friends uh, is a really good comic, but he moved to DC out of New York because he wanted to be closer to his family. I think there was a better arrangement out there. And he's like, you know, what? I realize if I was killing it at a comedy, but I was a bad father, I'm a loser. I would rather be a great father and not make it in comedy so I can live with myself. I think that's a good. Uh, 
way to look at it for, yeah. for sure. It, it's, it's a want versus need thing. He needs to be a good father because his children need him. He wants to be a great comic on top of that. If not, he's fine. Yeah. It's a, it's a mild bummer. He'd rather it's one nicer thing to trade. Yeah. To have in perspective, you know. I like that there was finally a place for me to tell my Tanglewood Steven Spielberg story mm-hmm. on that Erica Rhodes. I don't know that any other opportunity would have ever presented itself for my, that. My but. favorite moment in that story is that the, the light came on you and you went, it's me? With a question mark. And then you went, of course it's me. Yes. Like there was a second where you had self-doubt and then you're like, yeah. nah, no, nah, that makes sense. There's I this- watched a lot of Star Wars. John Williams is all about this. There are these contrasting forces in my head that are, you know, switch off between ego and self-deprecation. Mm-hmm. And if you catch it at the right moment, <laughs> I might stand up and think that I'm responsible for John Williams's career. I could almost see you doing that now. Yes. Like part of me thinks you did that now and you just said you were six <laughs> just to cover. It's me. That's a that's a, a low bell to the bone move, <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh man. I'm not judging, though, because if he said that, there would be a po- small part of my brain hoping it w- he would say me. Just because I'm, 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 a, I'm a more subtle egomaniac. Listen, you can't judge. You walked around <laughs> believing you were Hamilton. For- yeah, pretty much. <laughs> for, what, weeks, months? <sighs> like a year. Oh, my goodness. And I'm still, like I said, I'm still into it, but more responsibly now. Oh, it's hilarious. still a thing. Did you go and see the uh, Broadway show? No. I, I don't have $8,000. Because you need to keep not stopping and then eventually yeah. you'll have enough money to buy a ticket yeah and sit there for whatever two out how long is it two hours uh it's two and a half hours sung through two no. and a half hours and uh, then at the end of it you'll be like he stopped i knew all that <laughs> i lived all that <laughs> i was shot by my best friend turned enemy uh fun fact about a uh, cut out me thinking hard because i was just gonna say something i forgot what it was fun fact um it's a fact that's fun. Yes. Uh, what was we talking about Hamilton? What was the thing we said right before that? Uh, that you lived that, you are that. Two I and lived a half that. hours, sung through. Fun, fun fact. Oh, what was I going to say? I don't know. Maybe I'll think of it. The, I'll the think play. of it as soon as I leave. All right. The two, uh, two and a half hour play. Yeah. What was like $8,000. Right oh, yes. So I, I actually talked about this in. So I, I start by saying fun fact. Okay. Fun fact. Uh, a couple months ago, a friend of mine has a sketch group that's sort of like uh, like SNL in the 70s was their vibe. And they had a little black box theater show for like 100, 200 people. And they do the format of SNL. They had a musical guest and they asked me to host. And cool. so I came out and I did a monologue of jokes I'd written that week. And first of all, they were like, can you not talk about Trump? Because our last guy talked about Trump and it got weird. And I was like, yeah, I can stop talking about him when he stops being the news. I got to mention it for a second and mm-hmm. then move on. But so I was, I did this bit I was working on where I was so into founding father history. And I still want to do this, but I don't know how to start. I want to, for one day at least, do Revolutionary War reenacting just for the story. Because what if I love it or what if I hate it? Either like way. in the regular world? Yeah. Like, I want to go to the, my my old town that I grew up in used to do them on Long Island. But I don't know how to start and it's oh, cold. Oh, you want to, like, go to be part of it. Yeah, I want to be in the, sit in a trench with a pretend musket I going. I thought you meant just, like, walk around the city doing it. And pretending. No. <laughs> no, I want to be marginally less crazy. But the joke I had was I was like, yeah, 
I can't wait to just sit in a trench because I can't afford to go see Hamilton. I want to sit in a trench for four days while I try not to get shot by a dad from Yonkers who is not taking his divorce well. <laughs> so it's funny. If anybody can help me, I legit want to try that because I think it actually sounds even if it sucks. What a story. If this guy gets nothing out of this show, at least someone give him the opportunity to reenact yes. the, the Revolutionary War. I will war. work my way up to aide de camp Hamilton. Oh I'm an excellent gosh. writer. I'll write Washington's letters real pretty. <laughs> Alex, you're crazier than I thought, but I love it. This brings us to our final episode. Tape face. Tape face. The what boy did, with tape on his face. What did you think of that one? I liked that... Um, that was another one where the, the philosophy was a little better of a choice than I thought, even though I thought it was a good choice. I think you nailed it, yeah. Yeah, because, uh, you know, on the surface level, it's like, oh, tape over the face, that's a censorship, cen- censorship joke. But then he was like, oh, he talked about how he had this contrarian attitude. And not in a mean, snotty way, but just like, oh, I always want to do the opposite of what people are expecting, like a playful contrarianism, yes. like an Andy Kaufman, like you were saying. And then it got into the topic of, censorship and it's like is that a way of self-censoring because you're thinking about what other people want you to do is that more outspoken or is it in a way you know less unique because you're saying what does everybody want and you're always listening to what other people want out of you and doing the opposite yeah and i i think that it in that case he's using it to be really creative but i think there are people who just hate what everyone loves and, and love what everyone hates and that is just like cookie cutter you know I hated that movie. Well, I loved it. Well, it had some redeeming qualities. No, it didn't. Like, Yeah. The thing that stuck out the most from that episode to me was about how when I asked him who Boy With Tape On Face is, <laughs> he said it's his inner child. And that who the voice is on, on the God mic is yeah. him protecting his inner child. I mean, really, inside our hearts, aren't we all just a little boy with tape on our face? That's really what or I is thought. Is that just me? No, I know that's, you know... It just sounded to me like, oh, man, I'm pr- protecting my inner child. That's what this whole career choice has been about for yeah. me. Um, Carol O'Connor, uh, Archie Bunker, said show business is a business for people that don't want to give up that playful childlike part of their life. And they turn it into a way that they can play pretend forever. Yeah. Well, he was right. He was totally right. And also when he said, Edith, where's my pot roast, Edith? Edith. Man, that show was so funny, though. That show holds up in a hard way. It's so good. Yeah. Because people like that still, like, I when I did my racist toaster, mm-hmm. whenever toaster would say something that um, we kind of had a filtering process where I would write stuff, and then my friend Brandon, who directed it, would be like, yeah, we're going to get really badly yelled at if we do these. Let's just do these ones, and we'd massage it into shape. Mm-hmm. And then out of that... His girlfriend, now wife, would say, okay, I think this, this, and this might be a little troublesome. And we would make, I would always make the case. I'm like, Archie Bunker defense. You're not supposed to think he's right, but you're supposed to see the humanity of why he's wrong. And that, you know, he says some dumb things that come from evil parts of history, but he is not a monster. It's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So it's okay to laugh at him struggling and being a person because, like we said, not everyone struggles with being a racist and having really virulent, awful things to say, but everyone struggles with their thing. So there's a humanity in watching someone be a lovable bigot in a way. Yeah. Provided he shows you how he is worthy of you still listening to him. He's not just a blanket, one-note character that just says awful stuff. Yeah, I think it's always interesting when you have that kind of hero that 
um, that flawed, that Walter White kind of hero, flawed, you yeah. know? Was, that was Norman Lear, right, that did All in the Family? Yeah. He's still working, amazingly. He's like 90, and he's still excited to, he's like, oh, I want to watch whatever new movie's out and learn from it and do a new thing. He's. I wonder if we could get him on the show. That'd be he, pretty cool. That would be pretty cool. I mean, I mean he's 92. Let's start it. on that now. Yeah. He wouldn't be our oldest guest. He wouldn't. I think that goes to Carl Reiner. <laughs> no, it goes to Professor Irwin Corey, oh, the late great Professor Irwin Corey, who did the show at 102 years old. Yeah, it's going to be hard for someone to top that one. Yeah, you think anyone's like gunning for that title though? Like, I'm going to be the oldest guest. I'm, I'm going to 103 man I, celebrate that birthday. Call in Danny. I got him on speed dial. Yeah, I was amazed when he did it. Like when yeah. he when he agreed to do it because. Don Rickles said, uh, people originally said that he was too old and that he didn't want to do it, which was a cop-out. Yeah. And then they said he'll do it, but he won't do it as a podcast. And I stupidly should have just been like, okay, we'll do it as a video. Mm-hmm. But they're like, if you have any other projects, Don will do it because I was friends with his cousin. Yeah. And then I didn't come up with anything in time, and he okay. died. But yeah. for years I tried to get Don Rickles. I mean, yeah. These are the old time guys are the ones I love. And I figured out why. Because to me, they're like the philosophers. Yeah. I mean, it's like they put their whole life into a body of work and a very strong point of view most of the time. And yeah. a lot of the guys, it seems like you gravitate towards were out of that era where comics didn't really have much of a point of view. Their jokes were essentially interchangeable. But they, this newer breed started to come out that was like, no, I want to talk about my feelings. And they, they still, like a Rickles, had that kind of Vegas vaudeville about it. But it was humor from his point of view, which was, I think it's really fun to insult somebody. And then they they think that's so funny, we high five at the end, was was the yeah. message of him. Or a, a Carlin or a Pryor, those guys that were like, you know what? That era of comedy has been done, and I'd rather stand out than just trade jokes with another guy and no one notices the difference right it's a point of view and that's what's um that's why like this year i started including authors and historical figures as long as i feel like they had a point of view that was philosophical yeah if you know franz kafka is not a old greek guy in a robe but metamorphosis has a very clear philosophy to it which is morbid as hell but it's a very clear point of view that i think should be talked about i think yeah i think it was a smart decision of you to do that good also, so. I was running out of guys. <laughs> oh, man. Great season, Alex. Thank yep. you. And, uh, Thank you. I'm going to take this opportunity now to plug my comic book. Fairenoughcomic.com is a website. Please go pick up the first uh, episode. I'm calling them episodes. Uh, like it's a show of my comic book. Um, it features the story of Danny Lobel, the beginnings and how I became friends with the late, great Harvey P. Carr. I'm Harvey P. Carr. I hate going to the bank. It makes me want to die. That's a half good, half awful impression. <laughs> it's so rare because every other like syllable was right on and then off. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I first heard him talk last night when I watched American Splendor, and I was like, yeah, okay. I can kinda... can't believe you only just watched it last night. It's such it's... a classic film. Yeah, I, re- I thought it was made in 2013. It was 2003. I was like, huh. Yeah. All right. I was like, why does Paul Giamatti look so young in 2013? <laughs> All right. What do you got to plug? Uh, what do I got to plug? Uh, I write for some e-cards, which was the company I mentioned uh, before. And then other than that, I'm just doing shows, which are on my Twitter at a Fasella, A-F-O-S-S-E-L-L-A. Usually when I'm asked what do I had to plug, I just mentioned the show. So I'm like, wait, do I do anything else? Yeah. I don't know. Well, thanks for plugging it. A little it. crisis. 
I'd and like to plug this podcast on this podcast. <laughs> and my Twitter, by the way, has changed to at Daniel Lobel. But you can still find me if you type Danny Lobel on Twitter. It'll come up. All right, everybody. Thanks for staying with us for another season. Thank you. Thank you, Alex, so much for you, coming Danny. up to my swanky New York hotel room. It ain't much, but it's something. You know, it's nice. Better than a car. Mm-hmm. Better than a car. We'll see you next season, everybody, for season nine season. of Modern Day Philosophers. Damn, season nine. We did it. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye.